It's Thursday, October 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Hundreds of thousands of Californians are experiencing planned power outages in an attempt to avoid wildfires sparked by wind-damaged PG&E electrical equipment. Last year's campfire was set off by PG&E equipment destroying the town of Paradise and killing 86 people. Matt Simon, science writer at Wired, joins us for all the conditions that got us here. Next, amid more scrutiny in the wake of the college admissions cheating scandal, the ACT has announced that it will let students retake individual portions of the test they wish to improve instead of having to retake the entire test. These new scores will be added to a super score for that student. Tonell Hobbs, education reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what this all means for students taking college entrance exams. Finally, Apple and Google are pushing to transform the video game industry. Moving beyond traditional console and computer games, these companies are launching mobile game platforms like Apple Arcade and cloud-based gaming like Google Stadia. Kevin Webb, tech reporter for Business Insider, joins us for how the video game industry is changing. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's very frustrating on our part to have to be able to um, not know exactly what's going on for a large swath of our city and to have the, their power taken away. Um, so we would like to see PG&E make the investments in the infrastructure they need so this is not something that they have to do. Joining us now is Matt Simon, science writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And thanks for having me. Pacific Gas and Electric began turning off the power to an expected 800,000 customers in Northern California. This is all in an effort to hopefully avoid any wildfires that could be sparked by some of their electrical equipment. For those not very familiar, PG&E's equipment sparked last year's campfire in California, which killed 86 people and destroyed the entire town of Paradise. Matt, tell us some of the conditions that are prompting this. The central problem in California is that around this time of year, you get the seasonal winds that whip through from the northeast uh, toward the coast. And what those do is they drop in elevation. They scour along these mountains and funnel into valleys and pick up speed. As they drop in elevation, they dry out and warm. So as this wind is rushing over the vegetation, it is sucking what little hydration that vegetation has this time of year, considering that California just doesn't get that much rain um, by now. And, and indeed, with climate change, you're seeing rainfall being pushed farther into the winter. And what forecasters started seeing about a week ago was that the conditions were being set up perfectly this week for that. So in reaction, because pg e has sparked so many deadly fires in the past couple of years, they decided, OK, well, we're just going to cut power to, as you say, a staggering 800,000 customers, potentially. Everybody relies on electricity for quite a number of things, but shutting down power to entire counties like this poses a risk in and of itself. A lot of these mountain towns in California are communities of retirees uh, that are living on fixed incomes. They might have limited mobility. And in fact, that was the problem in paradise. A lot of people couldn't escape because they didn't have mobility or the means to get out of town. Now, what you're seeing when you're shutting down power to this many people is that a lot of us rely on medical devices that have to be electrified in order to oftentimes keep us alive. PG&E is giving people as much warning as they can here, but people need to make arrangements if they are relying on these medical devices. And it gets even more subtle and nuanced when you think about 
Well, in the case of a wildfire, if it's not PG&E sparking it, if all of their equipment is de-electrified and it sparks some other way and a wildfire is approaching your house, your car is in the garage and your garage door is shut and it's an electric opener, you're not able to get your car out. So one of the things is in preparation for these sorts of things, you have to open your garage. So it's just there's these really interesting and quite problematic issues that pop up that you wouldn't necessarily think of. And again, this is very much a last resort for pg They don't want to do this because as a power company, they are mandated to provide power for exactly these reasons. Is there any other recourse that some of these power companies have to help with this other than shutting down the power? The preparatory work is extremely important. Clearing brush around electrical equipment is a big one. But given the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of miles of electrical wiring crisscrossed throughout the state, it's going to take a lot of money for utilities like PG&E to go out there and check them all and to clear all that brush. And the problem with this year in particular was that our spring was fairly wet. That leads to an increase in vegetation. And then in a particularly dry summer, like we're having now, that then dries out. So you have even more brush to worry about. One potential solution is to start burying all these lines, but that is in of itself extremely expensive. And the problem in California is that much of the ground is pure rock and you can't just drill into that to any small expense. Farther out, some towns are starting to look at this idea of a microgrid, which is them using their own solar power and batteries to sort of divorce themselves from the larger grid. So in the event of these shutoffs, they won't be as effective as they would be. And a bunch of local leaders say these power outages prove how far the state has fallen behind in efforts to prevent these wildfires. We do need to invest in vegetation management and update the energy grids and hope that that helps. But beyond that, I mean, it is a tough situation with the way California's weather is so crazy right now. I mean, it really is kind of a fire season year round. So, I mean, it's just tough things to really get a handle on. We need to, as a state, get much smarter about clearing brush, letting some fires burn to naturally clear out that brush. Uh, You know, even if the utilities cut all their power entirely across the state for the next couple of days, you're going to have other ignition sources. Cars are going to overheat, going up hills, pull over onto brush, and their undercarriage will ignite that brush or people will throw cigarettes out of windows. There will always be ignition sources in California, so the only real solution is to get much smarter about these problems. Do we know how long it would take to restore power once the weather gets a little bit better, once the wind dies down a bit? How quickly can these services be restored? When the power companies decide to bring the power back online, they have to go out and inspect every inch of electrical wiring that had been shut down to make sure that the winds hadn't jostled it, knocked it loose. And if you turn on the power, then you spark a fire that way. So they're saying certainly up to five days. And the issue with an antiquated grid like we have now is that they're shutting down a lot more communities than they'd be because if you are in the middle of a community that's way out there that needs to have its power shut down, your power on the way there has to be shut down too. So then you have to have the utility come back and inspect all those lines as well. It's a total mess. The grid is just so old and antiquated. And again, the solution here is going to be in the future as battery prices come down and as solar panel prices come down, this move to microgrids where communities are more in control of their own power generation and storage. Matt Simon, science writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me.
And what ACT is going to do, it's going to look at all of the individual scores, and it will take the highest scores from each of those subject categories, and it would come up with what they call a super score. So it would be your best of. Joining us now is Tonnell Hobbs, education reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Tonnell. Well, you're welcome. It's a move that could boost student test scores. The ACT is planning to let students retake portions of the college entrance exam. And college entrance exams and the whole process has been facing a lot more scrutiny in wake of this big college admissions cheating scandal with Rick William Rick Singer. And we've heard about the celebrities, Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman, where they were basically, among other things, they were having certain people either fix test scores or change test scores. But the ACT has been working on this for some time now, and they're going to allow students to retake certain portions of the exam without having to retake the entire thing. Tanel, tell us a little bit about this. Well, you know, the ACT said it's been in the work for a couple of years, and they had noticed that there was almost 50% of test takers retesting. So they decided, well, why don't we make this easier for them where they don't have to sit through hours-long testing, and they could just focus on the area that they need to bring up their score in. So they're going to be able to retake individual sections, whether it's English, math, reading, science, and the fifth one, writing. Right. That's like an extra optional thing. And then so how are these scores going to be calculated now? Because obviously, if you would retake the test, that new score is your score again. So you could maybe do worse on a section you previously did pretty well on. So how is this new scoring going to be working? So when a student applies to college, if they require standardized test scores, the ACT or the SAT, the student still has to turn in all of the scores for that sitting. But they can also submit their retest scores. And what ACT is going to do, it's going to look at all of the individual scores and it will take the highest scores from each of those subject categories. And it would come up with what they call a super score. So it would be your best of to get you to that. Basically, they're just going to really aggregate to look at those top scores. And then they would submit that super score. And that score is what these colleges often look at. And sometimes the colleges actually come up with their own super score where they're looking at the subjects, just kind of taking the highest score from each one. And the SAT says that their research suggests that this is a more predictive way of, of how the student will actually do in college. Is this because they'll be able to focus specifically on one subject rather than just a big comprehensive test? That's what it sounds like. And they said that that was part of the research they did, that it shows that this is more likely how these students will perform on their college courses. The ACT right now costs $52 without the optional writing section. With that included, it'll be $68. Have they mentioned at all how much the pricing would be just for one of these individual subjects? No, but they did say that low-income students can take the test for free, and they can also take these retests for free. And I know there's been some concern out there with people feeling that this could cause some kind of equity issue because you have students who might have more money and might be able to take it repeatedly per second, third, fourth, fifth time. So ACT feels that this would kind of level that field because the low-income students could do their retests for free. Students can take the test up to 12 times. Although they say most only take it once or twice. So theoretically, they could, as you mentioned, keep retaking a certain subject. Yeah, I didn't see a limit at all mentioned, right? Interesting. 
talk to us a little bit about the kind of rivalry between the ACT and the SAT. I grew up on the West Coast, so for me, I don't know, it was always SAT that I had heard about, but for a while, the ACT was kind of a leader in students taking those tests. Yeah, you know, they are longtime rivals. And actually, last year, the SAT, when it comes to test takers, they actually surged past the ACT for the first time in seven years because the ACT had had a lock on more graduates choose us. And then also last month, the ACT announced that they had another record that 2.2 million 2019 graduates took the exam, and that's up from 2.1 million. So now ACT, they plan to release their results next week. So everybody will be watching to see if they can overtake the um, SAT and test takers. Right. The other thing that was interesting is they're expanding the availability of online test taking also. Yes, they are. And they do some online test taking right now. But this plan would make the online test taking available during the national test dates. And they feel like that'll be a faster turnaround. So kids would love that. So they wouldn't have to wait for a couple of weeks to get the results back. And they also feel like that could address an issue with just these kids are in a digital age and they feel like students are more comfortable doing tests online and digitally. So they think that it can help improve scores that way too. Tonnell Hobbs, education reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. The new generation gaming platform where you can buy the games you want and play them across your favorite screens. With Stadia, you get 4K gameplay without annoying game downloads, patches, installs, or expensive gaming hardware to buy. The days of waiting to download and update a new game are over. Just grab your controller and you're in. Joining us now is Kevin Webb, tech reporter for Business Insider. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. The video game industry, by some estimates, is now a $120 billion industry. Things are changing rapidly every day. It's moved beyond the console wars that people might have heard about, just PlayStations and Xboxes and Nintendos and things like that. Everything's moving to mobile. Things are streaming now. It's really getting pretty complicated. And Apple and Google specifically are pushing to transform the video game industry. They have new offerings in the video game world. Kevin, tell us about what's going on with Apple and Google, and then we'll get into a bigger discussion about the video game industry as a whole. So Apple and Google have had huge roles already in just changing how people play games thanks to smartphones. There are about 100 million PlayStation 4s out there, but Apple said there's 900 million iPhones. So more and more people are just picking up what they have, which is their phone, to play games. So both of these companies have had huge roles just in changing the landscape, and now we're seeing kind of just firsthand them get involved. So Apple is launching a subscription or has launched a subscription service called Apple Arcade that gives you 100 games and it removes all the ads and microtransactions. So it's really just like a curated collection for Apple users. And then Google has two initiatives, which is Google Play Pass, which is similar to Apple Arcade, and then Google Stadia, which is a premium platform that's going to be competing against PlayStation and Xbox. Right now, when people talk about the video game industry and how many people are playing, and I think there's an estimate that there's more than 2 billion players around the world, this does include everything. This is mobile phone games. This is console games. This is computer games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people who just play Candy Crush or whatever game during their commute might not think of themselves as gamers, but 
there they are. They're <laughs> just as much a player as anybody yeah. else. So tell us a little bit, because one of the ones that I'm very curious about is Google Stadia. They're pushing things beyond the gaming consoles and computer gaming on a computer system to streaming. So this is kind of, they think, the future of what gaming will be. Yeah, it's a really interesting technology. And Google has been kind of the first to, I guess, have the confidence to launch this kind of service. We've seen some video game streaming services in the past, like OnLive was probably one of the first pioneers. But now with 4G and then 5G on the horizon, it's much more realistic to see just a high quality AAA PlayStation or Xbox game streaming out to a phone. And so Stadia is going to be a new brand that is using remote cloud server PCs just to stream games out to people. And the hope is that they're going to remove the need for that $500, $400 machine, and you can just buy games from Google directly. And the good thing, I mean, if you have like a Chromecast or something, you can plug that straight into your TV and they have controllers already for it. So you wouldn't need the console. You just have to buy the whatever $60 games that they are. That seems pretty interesting. How does the industry as a whole kind of reacted to that business model? It's been an interesting response so far. I think it arrives at an interesting moment because Microsoft and Sony are planning to launch their new consoles next year. So Google choosing to launch Stadia this year kind of gives them a jump start and can maybe encourage people not to spend that money down the road. However, I think a lot of people anticipate when you hear a streaming service, you think of Netflix, you expect kind of like a library of games. So it remains to be seen if people want to start building a brand new collection on Stadia, buying games at full price, or if they're going to be more comfortable kind of going to the old model of games that you can buy, games that you can trade in, that kind of thing. You mentioned the subscription services like Netflix. A lot of other game companies are already doing that, whether it's on a PC or even on the consoles. They're offering a lot of subscription services to help keep you there, at least with their brand. I think as these companies start getting larger and larger back catalogs and more interesting, potentially lucrative proposition for them to say like, hey, we'll give you these massive collections of 100, 200 games for a monthly fee because otherwise it's going to be hard for them to keep adopting and trying to re-release all of these classic games. I've been a gamer for a long time and I've kind of gone through this progression with the NES and Super NES and moving on to PlayStations and Xboxes and everything. So I've kind of seen the trajectory of the video game industry, how it's been going for a long time. And now we have all these other elements, people streaming themselves, playing games and even monetizing that, making money, the rise of these mobile games. What do you see as the future of the video game industry, just concerning with how quickly things are changing? I think the main thing is just choice and accessibility have been key in the growth and what we're going to see in the future. I think the proliferation of these streaming services, be it one that you buy games for or ones that offer a collection, is just going to make it that much easier for people to access high quality games. And as far as people like making money and just sharing the experience, the accessibility will only go to help that because people are going to be more exposed to games. It's going to be an even more commonplace thing in our lives. Kevin Webb, tech reporter at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.